Um, my name is Christina Maxwell, um, and I, this is my third time to get to lecture for y'all this fall, and it will be my last. Um, so if you don't like what I say, you never have to listen to me again <laughs> until next year. Um, but really, it's been, a, it's been a huge privilege. It's been a whirlwind and a rush doing it all at the beginning like this, but I am having a baby, and so I'm going to retire for now. Um, yeah, but really, thank y'all. It's been, it's been fun to get to be here with you. Um, before we look at our text, um, we wanted to do a little reminder about these wonderful journals. This one is not mine because I couldn't find mine this morning. If that's giving you any indication of how well I'm doing with the journal. So this is not guilt, heap more bad you know, stuff onto your lap, but... Um, it just has come to our attention that maybe we aren't, like me, taking as much advantage of this awesome resource as we could or should be. Um, so in this little journal that you were all given, if you didn't get one, we have more, come find one. Um, there's just these awesome questions at the beginning right here, and they're meant to just be this like own little personal devotional aspect of this study to kind of really bring the text home, make it more personal. This is just for you. This is just you know you and God. This can be a little prayer journal. Um, but just as, like, we're talking about some deeply personal stuff, so we just want to really give ourselves a way to process through some of that and to make this text really come alive in each of our lives. So if you're, like me, struggling to even open this, um, Ada suggested, just take one question, you know, one question this week. Hey, how can I pray this text specifically for myself? How can I pray it for my church? And then write your prayers out to the Lord, you know? Um, I know that the people who I know who have been doing this have really found it beneficial. So let's all maybe try to do it too, just a reminder. Okay, I feel like I just keep getting these texts that are like so <laughs> theological. I mean, the whole Bible is about God, right? But it's like, great, now we get to explain Jesus and how he fulfills the law and what does that mean for us. So I apologize if this seems dense. I'm trying not to make it that way, but these are some big principles that we're going to talk about today. So... We're studying the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So far, we've seen Jesus has described his kingdom people, right, and the blessings they inherit in God's kingdom. We saw that in the Beatitudes. Um, We saw God's people have an awareness over their spiritual poverty, which causes them to mourn their sin. And that mourning leads to a humble and meek posture, which causes them to hunger and thirst for righteousness and what is good. And they see their mercy they've been extended, and they want to show others mercy, and then they receive more mercy, right? Um, They seek to worship God purely, and they make peace in this world. And for all of this, they get the reward of expecting persecution, (laughs) Um, right? Just as Jesus was persecuted. Uh, These are statements of reality, right? We said this about the kind of characteristics that are going to be produced in his disciples. And because of who God is making his people to be, We looked last week at how that will cause them to act as salt and light in the world, right? Um, Their effect on the world will be one of salt and light. They will preserve and cleanse and add beautiful flavor and spread truth and shine, be beacons of hope, right, in our world. Um, So when God's people function this way, the world sees them and their good works and glorify God. Um, So this is, that's the sermon so far. There you go. There's a summary. What's peculiar about this, and what certainly would have been weird for the, you know, original audience listening, is that God, Jesus, is standing here, right, as God, proclaiming all this stuff about the kingdom, and how to please God, and what brings blessings, and he has mentioned nothing about the law. 
that would have been very weird to them. They were all about the law, right? God is all about the law. In the Old Testament, you see, it's like he brings them out of Egypt, and the very first thing he does is give them the law and tell them how to live. And so it would have, the people we can think, I would think, who are sitting there listening to Jesus originally would have been wondering, where in the world does the law fit into all of this? Does Jesus hate the law? Is he antinomian against the law? (laughs) Um, Is he coming to teach a whole different message than that of the Old Testament? Is this something just on the side? Um, you know, he's certainly, as we saw back in, what, chapter 3, when John the Baptist, like, condemns the Pharisees as brood of vipers, he hasn't been nice toward the lawmakers, right? Um, so this is a big question. So Jesus, of course, he's God, he's aware of this, and so he does the gracious thing, and he turns to address the law. Where does the law fit into all of this? That's what we're going to look at today. Okay, so... We get to this section, and Jesus begins to tell his people that they can only do good works and bring God glory and be salt and light to the world if they understand the proper function and purpose of the law of God in the life of the believer. So when it comes to living your Christian life, you must understand the law, but you must understand it correctly. Um, Okay, I gave you all my handouts. I was going to read the text. It's just so quick. Let's read it, and then I'll pray, and we'll get going. Okay, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever teaches them and teaches them... Uh, teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, let me pray for us. Gosh. Dear Lord, obviously, I'm frazzled up here. Um, I just ask that you would meet us here, um, that you would make some of these deep, confusing, nuanced um, truths more clear to us, more beautiful and more believable, that we would be enabled to understand um, your law and how to approach it under Christ and how to obey in a way that would bring um, wholeness and healing to our world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is really simple. I titled this lecture, Jesus, the Law, and Me. And those are the three headings we're going to use (laughs) to look at this. Um, Sorry that they aren't some like deep outline. Um, So, in order to understand what this passage is saying, let's start with Jesus. So Jesus makes it very clear out of the gate that the law is everything to the Christian. Everything but our means of salvation, right? So he says immediately in verse 17, I have not come, I have come not to abolish the law and the prophets, right? He's making it painstakingly clear, lest you believe that because I haven't mentioned the law yet, that I'm somehow against the law or teaching something different than the law, that is not what I've come to do. The law still stands, and it still applies, and God's people must still deal with the law. But the question now becomes how or why? And he begins to answer that question in the second half of his statement, right? Not to abolish, but to fulfill. So we must ask ourselves, what does Jesus mean by the law and the prophets? How does he fulfill them? What does that mean? We're going to look at it in two different ways. Okay, so first, the term the law and the prophets can mean several different things. But to the original listeners, law and the prophets was this very common term. It went together, the law and the prophets, and it just meant scripture. That's just what they called their scriptures. You know, it's like the big, the good book or, you know, whatever other like little enemy, 
words we have to talk about the Bible, right? It just means the Bible. The law referred to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, and the prophets referring to the rest of the Old Testament. This was a very ordinary way of referring to Scripture. So on a first reading, we can just simply know that Jesus is saying, when he doesn't abolish the law and the prophets but fulfills it, that he's affirming the authority and accuracy of the Old Testament. Um, he is himself telling us that the Old Testament is true and authoritative. He goes on to speak about the details, right? Every dot and tittle. So much as, um, so as much as some of the parts of the Old Testament might bother me, right? And they might bother you, and they might bother others who are questioning and doubting Christianity. Jesus is showing us um, even things like war and famine, and you know, like these terrible stories we looked at last week about Lot, like. And all that, right, all this stuff that we don't want to have to deal with, <laughs> we have to deal with it because it matters. Jesus is telling us that right here in this passage. Um, the parts about blood and sacrifices and cleanliness, he is saying, you don't get to reject that. It's God's story, and it matters to me, and it matters to you. But he isn't just affirming the Old Testament. He's actually telling us how to read it. This comes in the second half of the verse, right? I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So we're going to camp out on what it means that Jesus has fulfilled the law for a few minutes. Um, he affirmed, so first he's affirming the validity and necessity of the Old Testament. And he's telling us, not only is he affirming it, but he's telling us it's all about him, right? One of the meanings behind the idea that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets is simply that they're all pointing to him. The law and the prophets point us to Jesus. Um, he gives us our, the seminary word is our hermeneutical or interpretive lens for understanding the Old Testament, so that we can agree with and affirm Sally Lloyd-Jones, who is the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, that every story whispers Jesus' name. The whole Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 24 is about Jesus. Levitical law, the sacrificial system, the patriarchs, the kings, the prophets, the exodus, the temple, it all points us to Jesus, right? So that's the first implication, that he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. Now let's turn to the second. And this one, I think, is more where Jen took us in our small groups discussions this morning. So let's just stop at the law. What does it mean that he didn't come to, that he didn't come to abolish the law, um, but fulfill it? Um, Jesus literally <laughs> fulfills the requirements of the law and the Old Testament prophecies on behalf of God's covenant people. It's that simple and that extraordinary and that complex all at the same time, right? Um, Matthew's made it very evident so far in his account of Jesus' life that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the one who was promised in Genesis 3 all the way back then and foretold by all of the prophets. Matthew is so intentional, as we've seen, to show us his genealogy, his birth, his evacuation to and reentry from Egypt. All of this was fulfilling prophecy, right? That's all the beginning of his life. And then at the end of the gospel, Matthew's very intentional to show that Jesus is fulfilling the law's requirements. Because in the Old Testament, when the law was given to the Israelites, it was, um, right, it was to show them the character of God, to reveal their sin, to keep them clean and pleasing to God with burnt offerings and sacrifices. But the Israelites fail over and over again, and they keep failing to keep God's commandments, and they fail to see their own sin, and they fail to worship God purely and truly. But not Jesus, right? Jesus is this perfectly obedient sacrifice. Um, he shows us, he, Matthew shows us he's actually sinless and he's clean and he is the pure sacrifice required to atone for the sins of the world. Um, at the Passover meal, the night before Jesus' betrayal and death, right, he shows and Matthew shows us in great detail that they're having this Passover meal and one thing is missing, 
there's no lamb at this meal. No one's prepared one, no one's eating one, because there's another lamb, right? The one who, the one who John calls at the very beginning of his gospel, the lamb of God, right, who would take away the sins of the world. Matthew is, this is very intentional. <laughs> um, that lamb was preparing to die so that God's people might have everlasting life. Jesus fulfilled the law's requirements through his perfect obedience, his atoning death, and his resurrection. This is the gospel, right? Christ died so that you may live. He fulfilled justice requirements as the perfect sacrifice necessary for the atonement of the sins of God's people and bought them eternal life. Um, And now he has actually enabled his people to follow and teach the law, which is where we're going to turn. So Christ fulfilled the law. The Old Testament still matters. (laughs) And he is literally the fulfillment of all of these promises, all of these requirements, all of this justice, right? So now the law. What does this mean for the law now? If Jesus is saying that he's fulfilled the law, isn't the law now irrelevant, right? If it was all just pointing toward this necessary sacrifice, definitely not. And we can see that in verse 19. Whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. So we must still practice the law and teach the commandments under Christ. But how? Well, the key is to understand that the law was never intended to earn us favor with God and can never earn us favor with God, right? The law reveals, we've said this, the law reveals the character of God. It reveals our sin. It shows us how to pursue a life of shalom and of wholeness, how to be truly human. So it's really tempting to believe that we must obey the law in order to earn our salvation, but that is making little of Christ and his death. It's legalism, right? Legalism says obey and find forgiveness. The gospel says taste and see that the Lord is good that your forgiveness has been bought by Jesus. So is the law important? Absolutely. But not because obedience of it puts us in God's favor. And that is so, I'm going to say it, you're going to get really tired of me saying that because I'm going to say it like 100 times in the next 10 minutes. But it's so important and we mess it up all the time, right? So it's tempting to read that Jesus fulfilled the law and to believe that the law is now obsolete. And that's why we need verses 18 and 19. The law is not obsolete. It is vital for the life of the Christian. Not to earn us favor, but to instruct us how to live. Um, just a word, too. Like I think it's also tempting when we read that Jesus fulfilled the law. Like, okay, yeah, the Old Testament matters, but it's like different than the New Testament, right? Like, so often we want to like pit Jesus against God the Father, or Yahweh. Like, Jesus is love, and God the Father was like wrath and vengeance and stuff. But but what I think is really beautiful here um, is that. Oh gosh, sorry. Okay. Um, is that Jesus? <laughs> um, Jesus is showing that the two do not contradict each other. Right? They go hand in hand. Um, and part of the reason we know why is how he starts verse eighteen when he says, "Truly I say to you," which is a notable change from how other prophets would have taught. Okay, so when other prophets taught, like we read in Isaiah last year, they say, thus says the Lord, or thus saith the Lord, you know, for the, um, whatever. Okay, so instead of this normal pronouncement, Jesus is making a radical one, right? He isn't speaking as a mouthpiece of God, like the prophets of old. He is speaking as God. He isn't saying the Lord says, he's saying, I say. And he's going to continue to say, I say, for the rest of the sermon, right? Um, But he is not contradicting the, the law, of the Old Testament with everything that's about to follow in the Sermon on the Mount because he is saying, I am God. I am the same giver of the law on the mountain 
to Moses. I am the same giver of the law on every page of Leviticus, right? We are the same. So lest you, if we are ever tempted to stop and think these two things are opposed to each other, we haven't pushed far enough in. We cannot stop there, okay? And when other people want to do that, we can graciously deal with them and say they're not, they're not opposed to each other, right? The teachings of the Old Testament and the New Testament do not contradict each other. We, the problem is with us. We must just not be reading it correctly. Um, okay, so the law matters. It matters not for our salvation, right, but for our obedience, and we're going to talk about that. So now we're going to turn to me or us. How does this, what does this have to do with us, right? As followers of Jesus, how do we relate to the law? How do we obey the law? First, let's look at the negative because that's where Jesus starts. Um, so what does it mean to relax the law? Uh, Jesus says in verse 18, whoever relaxes the law will be least in the kingdom of heaven. So before we embark on this conversation, I think it's really important. I'm going to say it again. We are not earning God's favor with our obedience. We are not losing God's favor with our disobedience if we are in Christ, right? So we can all take a deep breath. Praise be to God. Um, but more than take a deep breath, we can actually allow God's spirit to convict us of sin, where we are relaxing the law as necessary, right? We don't have to be defensive, constantly defending our actions, because what's the worst that's going to happen? We're going to realize our own spiritual poverty and cry out for mercy and receive more mercy, right? It's actually quite beautiful. Um, Jesus is talking about kingdom people here. He isn't, this isn't an out, those who are outside and those who are inside yet. We're going to get there in a second. But this is in the kingdom. Least in the kingdom and great in the kingdom is all in the kingdom, right? <laughs> so we can know that he's talking about us. He's talking about God's people, his church. We are going to relax the law. We can trust him with that. Um, so we want to have it all together. We want to have these checklists that we can tick off and know that we are being good Christians. But the Sermon on the Mount is going to kind of blow up that checklist if we let it. Um, that's kind of part of what it's meant to do, right, is to show us, like, this is unattainable. Um, but it isn't a bad thing. That's what I want us to see. It's actually a good thing. When we feel conviction of our sin in such a way, it means that God has, has us exactly where he wants us. It means we can cry out to him and realize our spiritual poverty. So with that in mind, and I mean that, let's look at what it means to relax the law. Okay, so to relax the law, it means to dismiss the law, to break the law, to not uphold and obey it 100% of the way, 100% of the time. And I know that sounds harsh, but it, that's it. Um, I think it looks a lot like moral relativism, which is the world we swim in. Um, to say parts of the law matter and others don't. To say that it's okay, um, that it applies to some people but not to others. Uh, to think it's okay to break part of God's law if you've upheld the rest or to break God's law in order to accomplish some greater end. Um, you know, the whole, like, I'm basically a good person, so it doesn't matter that I gossip type thinking, or it doesn't matter what I did as a high schooler because I've grown up to be a good person, whatever. Relaxing the law can look like trying to find the bare minimum of obedience <laughs> um, or asking, like, how far is too far to take you back to high school, which is what I get to do all the time, right? We work in youth ministry, for those of you who don't know. Um, so one example that comes to mind frequently when I think about this, other than high schoolers and their sexual desires, is, is tithing, is giving of our money, right? Um, I think this is an area where we love to be, what's the bare minimum I have to do? We ask all kinds of questions. Is it like 10% before my taxes or after my taxes? Does that matter now that Jesus fulfilled the law? Are we still under that? Do we have to give? 
Um, and it all stems from a heart posture that views our money as our own instead of God's, right? It stems from anxieties toward not having enough, which Jesus is going to speak about in the sermon. It stems toward covetousness of other people's nice belongings or a desire for more a desire for more belongings or idols of comfort, right? We allow these things to creep into our heart and drown out God's law, and we relativize it and we relax it. We say it's not that bad to keep our money to ourselves. That's one example of how we relax the law. Okay, so if we aren't trying to earn God's favor through the law, but the law is important and shouldn't be relaxed, then how do we uphold it? Well, Jesus finishes verse 18 with, whoever does them, the commandments, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Do the commandments (laughs) and teach others to do the same. Obey God's law. Repent when you find yourself relaxing the law. But why? Again, again, not to earn God's favor, but now actually to please God. This is a really cool part. Now in Christ, we are able to please God. And like we saw last week, do good works like being salt and light. And it actually brings God glory. This goes hand in hand with the gospel. It isn't opposed, okay? Obedience and the commandments and the law and the gospel are not these things that are out here opposed to each other. They fit perfectly with each other. We are free in Christ to obey, and our obedience, Christ tells us, will make us truly human. The law doesn't exist arbitrarily. It doesn't exist to give us something to do or just to make our lives harder or keep us busy until we get to heaven. God's law actually shows us how we may flourish. Um, God gave us his law in the Old Testament, and Jesus will expand on his teaching in the rest of the sermon because he knows we need it, right? He knows that Christians are people who have anger problems. We have lust problems. We are people who have bitter enemies, and we struggle in our marriages. We boast about our good works, and we have deep anxieties about our money. He gives us this law to show us how to find shalom, peace, and wholeness, how to be human, how to flourish. What a change in our thinking to believe that our obedience to God's law will actually lead toward our health, right? Not to earn salvation. It will actually lead toward our preservation of the world, toward being a light and a beacon of hope. It will actually lead toward other people glorifying God when they see our good works. Um, So the law continues to be the perfect rule of righteousness for the Christian in Christ. Once you know that the law cannot, again, earn your salvation, right, into heaven... You are now able to do what you could not do before because of the indwelling spirit. You can do good works like we just said, right? Um, So, sorry. Um, Once you have a relationship with Jesus, you can say along with King David, oh, how I love your law, right? Jesus is saying you are being renewed in your humanity into the image of Jesus, the fullest human, right? The freedom involved in being truly human comes when you express yourself in the law of God. This is how the Christian life is to be lived. So how do we uphold it? Well, we have to deal with verse 20, right? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, can I be honest with you all? <laughs> My thinking, I, I have a seminary degree. I, I finished it a few years ago, right? And, and my thinking on this verse changed, like, a whole lot in the last week. I only say I have a seminary degree because, like, you would think, oh, you go to seminary and you get all the answers. But evidently, you don't. Um, <laughs> and I'm being serious. Like, all of the reading that I've done has, on this one verse has literally changed, like, the way I understand the whole Sermon on the Mount. Um, so I used to think that the Sermon on the Mount, including this phrase, existed just to show God's people that they can't live up to God's law and that they need Jesus. And I don't think that that's untrue necessarily, but I don't think it's the whole truth anymore. Um, most of my understanding hinges on this reading. 
that I told you all done on this verse. Okay, so for, <laughs> for some reason, I used to think that this verse was showing us that, of course, no one's righteousness could surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees and earn their way into heaven because Jesus needed to bring you into heaven by faith. And that is true. Like, in principle, yes, that is true. You can't earn your way into heaven, right? We've said it a hundred times. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is actually simply saying that people in his kingdom have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. His people are genuinely more righteous than the Pharisees are. (laughs) Um, Sinclair Ferguson calls this principle right here the interpretive key for the entire sermon, okay? Literally, God's people are more righteous than the Pharisees are. (laughs) And that's going to help us understand the whole rest of the sermon. So how do God's people have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees? Well, it's a different kind and quality of righteousness, okay? Here Jesus is referring to an inside-out righteousness because Jesus cares about your heart, which is what we've been saying, right, this last five weeks. Remember, like I said two weeks ago, here again, Jesus is condemning and giving warning to those whose outward or external righteousness is masking the corruption of their hearts. God's people, Jesus is saying, will be more righteous than the Pharisees because the Pharisees did good things for wrong reasons. They followed the law without any acknowledgement of their spiritual poverty or mourning over their sin. They were legalistic, and that didn't mean that they loved the law too much. I think sometimes we think that, like, oh, they just were so obsessed with the law and they loved it too much. You can't love the law too much, Jesus is showing us. (laughs) But they added to the authority of the word of God, right? And they had good intentions doing that. They were trying to, like, protect the law so much that they didn't even come close to sinning. And yet they didn't realize their own sin, right? Um, King David illustrates this point for us in Psalm 51. He says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. The righteousness of the Pharisees was like a sacrifice or burnt offering without a broken spirit or contrite heart. And God despised it. And he is calling us to be more righteous than that. (laughs) Jesus is showing us that the arrival of his kingdom will bring about a different kind of spiritual transformation in the life of God's people. Um, Which Jesus will show us in the rest of the sermon will produce a change in their ethical and social lives. Which is what we're going to look at, right? So he's warning his people more broadly about something that he makes very clear later in Matthew's gospel when he declares a curse upon those who appear to be whitewashed tombs, right? Um, So we need to be careful. Just as we don't relax the law, we also don't want to add to the law with our own junk either, right? We can't add to the authority of the word of God with our own rules. But, oh, we love to do this. We all love to do this, right? Um, Some examples just super quickly... If you want to be a Christian, you have to vote a certain way. If you want to be a Christian, a real Christian, school a certain way. Um, Real Christians could have never done this sin in their lives, or real Christians couldn't struggle with that sin in their lives. Like, we create these categories, right? And we do it to defend ourselves and defend others, etc. We all know this. Jesus is warning us against that. He's saying that this, that, that, sorry, um, that, that isn't righteousness, right? Because it actually keeps us from seeing our spiritual poverty and crying out to him. It hurts our relationships with others. Remember, Jesus summarized the law as this. Love the Lord your God and, the neighbor as yourself, and your neighbor as yourself. So everything we're about to learn um, fits into that, right? Jesus is showing us that the pathway to greatness in the kingdom of heaven is, in fact, following the law and teaching others to do the same, but not in an empty, whitewashed tomb way and not in a legalistic, trying-to-earn-God's-favor way. <laughs> 
Rather, in tasting and seeing what the Lord has done on your behalf and realizing it is only through him that you can do anything glorifying to God at all. We can rest assured that if we are united to Christ, we are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, which is pretty cool. Not because we are better, but because we have received regeneration when we enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never says you can love the law too much, like I just said, right? Jesus gives us the law so that we can flourish and lead healthy lives and love God and love our neighbors. So you can ask yourselves, how do I love people well? Well, you don't murder them, right? I mean, you don't steal, the, steal from them. You don't even allow yourself to be angry with them, God is going to tell us, right? Um, you don't even desire what's theirs. This isn't just arbitrary. It's because obedience to the law, once we are in Christ, really does lead us to be conformed into the image of the truest human. It makes us more like Jesus. He's going to tell us that even if we haven't murdered anyone physically, our anger can still eat us alive, right? Even if we've never cheated on our spouse, to look at a person and only see sex instead of the Imago Dei, it will eat us alive. To allow ourselves to be consumed with disdain for our enemies, it will eat us alive. So the law exists to protect us from ourselves, <laughs> to conform us to look more and more like him, and to actually enable us to love people well. It gives us necessary boundaries. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to close with this, and I'm really not trying to be provocative. I just want to be honest about what's on my heart. So please take it as such. Um, so we've been struck, I've been struck these last few weeks over this gross debacle that's happened as our Senate voted to confirm our newest Supreme Court justice that God's law exists to protect us. That's really what I felt over and over again. <laughs> and this might be a weird take. And I'm really not trying to tell you what to believe about these accusations. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what I believe about the accusations. But I do know this, that the last few weeks have reminded me in a huge way that God's call for his people is not to walk in drunkenness. Like, I just feel like drunkenness has been brought to the stage and it's been talked about in beer and high school, right? The 80s. I've been reminded just of, like, movies and 16 Candles and just this culture of drinking and sex. And I just couldn't help but just be, like, so sad. I was reminded of my own seasons of drunkenness, my own nights of not exactly remembering everything that happened. People in my life who have been mistreated or abused when too much alcohol is involved. Um, I've had to think about how alcohol abuse is literally tearing up my own extended family right now. Um, I could go on, and I know y'all, y'all get it. You get the picture, right? Watching all of this unfold, right, and reading all these kinds of takes on the situation, I've just really been sh- struck with how in, like, our moral, morally relative society, we can't just, like, call it what it is. <laughs> that without drunkenness, this whole situation really wouldn't even be in question, Right? It's been this overwhelming sense for me of how God's law exists for our protection. He calls us not to walk in drunkenness. It's given me an overwhelming sense that in this way, we can be salt and light in this moment for our society. We don't have to pick a side, believe all women, or worry for our sons as if those things are mutually exclusive anyway. But we can say that drunkenness doesn't lead toward health. It doesn't lead toward flourishing or good. God's law tells us so, right? We can teach our kids to respect each other and to be careful with their drinking. We can actually follow a different ethic than the one of our world here and distinguish ourselves from this world where drunkenness isn't against the law and isn't even frowned upon. (laughs) So the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to go through many common teachings that have been distorted by the religious leaders of the day. Jesus is going to expand on them. You've heard it said, but I say, right? And when he does this, he's going to be calling us to obey, not to earn his favor. There you go, number 100. 
because he has fulfilled the law and the prophets, but to lean into our new identity as the blessed members of his kingdom who can seek wholeness and health and goodness for ourselves and our world through our trust and obedience. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the beautiful reality that you have earned our salvation on our behalf. Um, Thank you that you want what is good and true and beautiful for us. I pray that each of us would have bold faith to look at the sin in our lives and to trust you with it, um, to cry out to you from the depths of our anger and our bitterness and our covetousness and our anxiety and our worry, and we would trust you with all of that, and we would give it to you because we know that your law is for our good. It is for our health and our wholeness, and that we would be beacons of light in this dark, dark world. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.